Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Um, this last week I had several of you ask me, um, uh, wanting to hear more about not just the history, but what was going on at the time of Jesus' birth? What, what were the influences happening to bring about not just his birth, but what was happening in the world at the time? Um, so I went back and looked at some of the sermons I preached in the past. Uh, this is my fourth Advent with you all. Um, and, you know, it's, it's always difficult for a pastor to, to think, OK, here comes Christmas again, another series of sermons again. What do I preach on? Oh, Christmas. Okay, how many times can I do that? Uh, and so every year you've got to get more and more creative about what you're going to preach on. But this year in particular, um, uh, you know, after hearing some feedback from you all, I felt strongly about something that, that's been on my heart for a while. And that is, you know, one of the most misread uh, accounts in the Bible is the nativity, the birth of Jesus. We Christians blow it completely. We're not true to the text. We're not true to the scenario of what's going on. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, Jesus died nailed to a wall. We wouldn't accept that because it's clear he was nailed to a cross. But yet when it comes to the nativity, we miss it. We've got this beautiful little manger scene set apart from all everybody else. Um, it's all clean and, and Mary looks like she's 23 and uh, Joseph looks like a good strapping young man. And, and, and these things are just so far from what the reality actually was. So our journey in Advent over these next few weeks, I'm going to journey with you through the Promised Land, through Judea at the time of around about the first century. I'm going to talk to you about what's happening in these towns, what people are feeling and thinking, and we're going to kind of bring the text alive. Are you with me? Some of you have heard some of the stuff I'll be sharing, but I'll share it again just to give us a bit of a framework about what's going on. Because if there's one verse that sums up Christmas, it's this one. We don't usually associate this verse with Christmas. But this is the core of Christmas. Because think about it. The almighty, all-powerful God who can do anything he wants, chooses to send his son on earth to live a life that has to die quite painfully for us. It doesn't make sense, does it? If you had the power to to, to choose to save your family, would you sacrifice your daughter for it? Or your son. If you had the power, would you do that? You could save your family any way you like, and you choose to sacrifice one of your children. Doesn't make sense. And yet, that is the core of Christmas. The core of Christmas is to let go of power. Now, It's really important to understand what's going on in the world at this time because it makes so much more sense 
as to why Jesus came the way he did and when he did. So I'm going to start quickly by a little map of the known world. Um, As you can see, most maps, ancient maps, do not have Judea on it. Okay? That's that little area right here, Israel. Now, it's not Israel anymore. Why? The Assyrians came and they took a big chunk of the northern kingdom away. And what was left? Judah was all that was left, right? Okay, if you're reading Kings, you read these stories, you're like, wow, the Assyrian Empire that came from, you know, up around here, they came down and they took off and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, We still talk today about uh, the lost tribes of Israel. Not all of them are lost, but some of them, we don't know where they are. And all that was left was the southern kingdom, and that was Judah. That's why we call them Jews today. That's where we get the word Jews from. Because uh, you know, even Israel, when it formed in 1945, when they, when they formed the state of Israel, there was a debate over whether they should call themselves Israel or call themselves Judea. But they chose to go with Israel because that was the promise that God had given to. He'd given it to all the tribes, the whole tribe of Israel. Anyway, so Judah then gets taken away by the Babylonians and Israel completely is gone. But then the Persians come along and they send the Judeans back and the Jews are all happy because they get their land back. But they're still under the thumb or rule of Persia. And that's where this man comes along. Everyone know Alexander the Great? Do you know that it is said that he was born of a virgin? Did you know that? Did you know that he apparently fulfills a prophecy in the book of Daniel? So this is the lead-up. This is the point. Uh, His mother, uh, Olympias, says that the spirit of Zeus filled her and she gave birth to Alexander. Um, That's what she says. Philip II, who was the uh, king at the time in in a region called Macedonia, which, just to confuse you all, is not the same as the country Macedonia today. Um, there's a state of Macedonia in Greece and there's a country called Macedonia just to confuse us all, right? And they both don't like each other very much so it's a bit of a hotbed of an area. But um, he was from Macedonia, he was a king and he was quite a successful king. He he had had basically conquered all of Greece um, and then he was pushing into what is now modern-day Turkey. His son was taught by Aristotle, a great Greek philosopher and so he was quite a smart bloke. started taking over uh, most of Asia Minor. And he had a policy that was very similar to the Assyrians, and that is when they conquered somebody, okay, they butchered all the men. They killed them all. And they just left the women and the children and then dispersed them amongst the empire. What's the point of that? Sorry? They lose their identity, uh, rebellions, you know, normally the rebellions are started from the men, uh, sometimes women will start rebellion, but, but in a whole, you know, if you get rid of the men in the society, they're not going to fight back. You lose your identity, and then the kids grow up with the identity of the new kingdom. That's what the Assyrians did, and Alexander the Great did that as well. Every town he, he, he encountered, he killed all the fighting men, he killed all the men, left just the women and the children, and put his own commanders in charge of that town. But something happened. 
Because as he was going, he destroyed the Persian Empire and he was coming into Judea. He was about to lay siege on Jerusalem. And guess what they did? They opened the doors to him. They didn't fight him. In fact, the high priest came out with the book of Daniel saying, You, Alexander, fulfill the prophecy in chapter 8 of Daniel. God talks about you. And Alexander was so taken by it that he left Judea alone. This is important because later on when you read in the Bible, there's this, you know, problems with the Jews, especially the Greek Jews. You know, there's this, because the Greek Jews now look at Alexander the Great as like, oh, he fulfills the prophecy in chapter 8. And for those of you who don't know the prophecy, it talks about a, uh, a ram with two big horns. And they assume that's Persia, who takes over, comes out from, from the east and takes over the land. But then out of, out of, the, out of the east comes this, um, sorry, the ram's Babylon. Out of the west comes this uh, male goat with a big horn. And it kills this ram. And now it becomes the ruler of the whole land. That's Persia. And then this horn falls off and this little horn grows. Alexander the Great apparently was a very short man, much like Napoleon. He wasn't big in stature, yet he was very smart and very dedicated. And this small horn grew so much that it destroyed this male goat and took over the whole land. And the Jews were like, you're the one that God talks about. We must submit to you. And he does, and he leaves the land alone. He goes over and takes over Egypt. He goes as far as India. On his way back from India, he stops in Babylon, contracts a disease. People think it might have been meningitis of some sort, and takes two weeks to die. And in the process of dying, he's unable to kind of tell the people who the next ruler will be. And so his generals and bodyguards, they all begin a bit of a civil war and they break up Alexander's um, empire. And so the southern kingdom of his empire was called uh, the Ptolemaic uh, Empire. That took over most of uh, Israel, or what we know of today of Israel, and also uh, Egypt as well. Ptolemy was a bodyguard of Alexander, very loyal to Alexander, so he took over this, this part of the land. Now, the Egyptians, their pharaohs had died off many years ago, and they saw Ptolemy as the new pharaoh. In fact, every person after him who ruled in that land was called Ptolemy. That, that was a title. The women who took charge were given a title as well. Guess what that title was? <laughs> no. Come on, she's famous. Cleopatra. Cleopatra VII actually is the one that we know about. That Elizabeth Taylor starred in that movie. You guys seen that? No? None of you? With Mark Anthony. We'll get back into that a little bit later on. But that was actually Cleopatra VII. There were seven other Cleopatras before her. And that came from the Ptolemy, the Ptolemy line. Now, they were great. The Ptolemies, people liked them. The, the Egyptians got behind them. The Judeans liked them. The, the Jews loved them because they let them do their own thing. They let them rule, even though they were under the, the, uh, the rule of, of the Ptolemies, they could do their own thing. And the Jews loved that. You know, just let us do our thing. They did their religion, they did their, their whole thing. And for 150 years lived in relative peace. The problem was, in the east and north, 
The other part of the, uh, the empire was given to a guy named Seleucus, who was a general of Alexander. And this guy loved to fight. He wanted to take over the whole empire. So for the, the next 150 years, he and his successors tried to expand their empire. They were following in the simple footsteps of what a general does. We don't stop till we've conquered everything. And he tried, and his sons tried, and his grandsons tried. And it all came down to this one guy called Antiochus IV, who was a firm believer in uh, Hellenizing the world, that is, turning the world into Greek. Everybody had to dance the Zorba and eat pita bread, and olives, and feta cheese, and, well, that sounds pretty good, but anyway. Um, but he was a nice man. He was not a nice man. He had taken over, and he wanted to conquer the world, and he wanted to set up statues of Zeus everywhere. So he goes down to Ptolemy's kingdom and starts a war with them. In the meantime, there's another power that's rising up in the world. Who can guess that one? Rome. Rome had just destroyed Carthage. They had owned pretty much more, most of northern Europe, uh, northern Africa. They were pushing into Europe. They were a, a power to be reckoned with. And the Romans didn't want Antiochus to be messing with Egypt because Egypt had given their allegiance to Rome. So they sent one ambassador to go talk to this guy. So Antiochus, with all his army, they are approaching Egypt, and this one Roman uh, emissary stands between them and Egypt, and he says to them, Rome does not want you to fight the Ptolemies. Antiochus, being the man that he is, well, uh, I need to think about that one. So it is said that this Roman emissary drew a circle around Antiochus, and he says, I want an answer before you exit this circle. He's just one man. Of course, Antiochus starts to get worried. His generals are telling him, whoa, this is Rome you're dealing with. And so he has to swallow his pride and say, no, we won't attack Ptolemy. But that makes him very angry. And, and sometimes us guys, when we get angry, we need to kind of let it out. Right? We've got to have that little hissy fit, okay? Ladies, if a guy's all, let him have his little hissy fit, because if not, serious damage can happen. And so this guy, on his way back, passes Jerusalem, and he gets mad at the Jews, and he lets out his anger on them. He goes into the temple, he pulls down the curtain, goes into the Holy of Holies, and then erects a big statue of Zeus. He's had his hissy fit. And then he says, everybody must worship the statue of Zeus, and he goes away. In fact, when you read Daniel, uh, part of it refers to him, Antiochus, as a prophecy for... He was referred to as the first Antichrist. Uh, in a sense, he was very, very not loved by the Jewish people. And in fact, a man by the name of uh, Matthias, the Hasmonean, he's called the Hasmonean because his father's name was Asmonius, so... He was from a little town just outside of Jerusalem. As all the Jews are lining up to worship the statue of Zeus, Mattahias gets so enraged that the next person that goes up to worship at the statue, he pulls out his sword and kills them and starts what's called the Maccabean Revolution, the revolt of the Maccabees. The word Maccabee means the hammer. 
Yeah, his son Judas was known as Judas Maccabeus, um, uh, Judas the Hammer. Uh, and, and they started this revolt against the Seleucids. Now, this is big. You're talking about a huge empire with an army and the whole thing. And these guys are basically doing guerrilla warfare against these guys. But they managed to win. And not only win, but they knock down the statue of Zeus. They offer up offerings to the Lord. And for the first time since before Babylon, Judah is its own state. Nobody's ruling it. Everyone heard of the... uh, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah uh, celebrates this event. The first time since Babylon that the Jews now have their own state that's not ruled by anybody else but them. And basically, John Hyrcanus, who is a uh, great-grandson or grandson of Judas, becomes their first ruler. He consolidates the lands. But he does one thing. That causes trouble to Israel, or to the Jews. He takes over the lands around Judea. A place called Idumea. Idumea used to be called, in the Old Testament, Edom. Anyone know where Edom comes from? It's not the cheese. Don't, don't confuse it with the cheese. Esau. Isaac had two sons. Jacob, which was to be known as Israel. And his other, his older brother was Esau, which was to be known as Edom. And they were known in the New Testament as the Edomians. Well, they forced them. John Hyrcanus gets an army, goes out and forces them to start worshipping the true God because they had strayed. And he, he makes them part of Judea. Now, this is all good and well. That's what leads up to this very important point in Jewish history, in Israel's history. Okay, so why is the New Testament so different from the Old Testament? Anyone ever thought of that? The customs are different. The language changed. What else happened? Anyone read anything about Pharisees in the Old Testament? Exactly. So first thing was the Hellenization of the Mediterranean world. The Greeks, Alexander the Great did something that was incredible. Okay, the reason, the longest reigning empire in, the, in history that we know of are the Assyrians. And the reason why is because they basically decimated culture and imposed their own culture on the people. They killed all the uh, able-bodied men, and so the children grew up only knowing Assyrian ways. Alexander did the same thing. He decimated the male population, the men, and so the children were growing up learning Greek, learning Greek customs, Greek philosophy. Mathematics was, was, was basically a part of the Greek culture. And these people are growing up in it, and all of a sudden, the Jews now are all speaking Greek. They all know the language. Why? Because Alexander came around and made this big impact on them. It was so entrenched that when the Romans finally took charge, what happens to their gods? Their gods become Greek gods. They just change the name. They can't get rid of Zeus or Apollo or Artemis. They can't get rid of them, so they change their names. Just made them Roman names, but the same gods. That's how, in, how much of an impact the Greeks had. You also had the development of the synagogue. You don't see a synagogue in the Old Testament, do you? 
There's no places of worship except for one, isn't there? The temple. But now, because things have been so, you know, a lot of upheaval and, and all these nations coming in, the, the Jews feel like they've got to have their own little places where they can go worship. And so the synagogue becomes really important. And you see that in the New Testament with Jesus and he goes into the synagogue. Paul, when he goes all over the Mediterranean, he goes and visits the Jews, usually in their synagogue. The other thing is religious political parties. If you don't have a king, what happens? (laughs) You know, inevitably, if there is not one source of power, there becomes multiple sources of power. If there's not one person in charge, everybody wants to be in charge. And that's how political parties form. Everybody wants to have their say and their dues. And all of a sudden, within the Jews, there's no king anymore. So these little factions are starting to pop up everywhere. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then there's a couple of others that you read about, the Zealots. Jesus had a disciple that was a Zealot. And then you've got these other ones called the Essenes, who were kind of like the monks of Judaism. They were really, really well known for what? aspect. Does anyone know what they're well known for? Dead Sea Scrolls. No, not that big guy, the the, the little hole in the back there, okay? In the back there was the cave where they first discovered the first parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest finds in archaeological history. I mean, they had found basically a complete Old Testament that was over 2,000 years old, and all those years of secularism telling us that they've changed the Bible. It's, oh, you know, after all these years, it's different. They find these scrolls and they think, we can prove it now. And in fact, quite the opposite. They haven't changed in 2,000 years. An incredible find. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they start to take control of the land, of the people. They're religious groups, but they're also political. So what's the difference between them? Pharisees are interpreters of the law. Sadducees, they reject oral law. The difference being is that the Pharisees, they rely on what the rabbis teach. Kind of like what I'm doing to you this morning. Rob's giving you a background of what's going on. That's all good and well, but we don't take that, Rob. According to the Sadducees, we only talk about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Okay? They believe the Pharisees in the resurrection of the dead. You know, that there's an afterlife. The Sadducees, no, we don't see it, we don't believe it. The Pharisees, partial free will. Like, there is a little bit of free will, but really God's in control of everything. The Sadducees, on the other hand, it's all about free will. Pharisees focus on the temple, the Sadducees focus on religious rights. If you're looking at this and you read in the Gospels, especially about Jesus, you start to see where his arguments lie with them. The Pharisees don't believe in the Messiah and the Sadducees do believe in the Messiah. These are the differences. So this is the first century. This is what it's like. John Hyrcanus unites all of what we can see and and that's basically Judea as Jesus knew it. There's uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, up here is Samaria and even though Samaria has its own name, it's part of Judea along with Idumea, which is Edom down here. Over here is the Dead Sea and over this way is what we have modern day Jordan up here is Syria Um, so this is their land they're in charge they finally have their place but something starts to happen this is so typical of people 
when things are going right, if they're not fighting with someone, they start fighting with themselves, right? Galilee is further north. Um, so it would be up about here. It's actually not part of Judea. It's part of a, a place called Perea, which um, when the Romans came uh, at that point, they separated it into three different areas. Um, so up here is uh, Galilee. So Perea comes all along here. Actually, you can see the P right there for it. Perea goes all along here. And on this side is the Decapolis which is a region for made famous for when Jesus, when he got in the boat and went across to the other side and he encountered the, the man that was demon-possessed and he sent the, the demons into the pigs. That area is the Decapolis. Uh, it wasn't a very nice place for Jews because they were, well, they weren't Jewish. Uh, they were non-Jewish people who had kind of been mixed races. They kind of stayed away from that area, which makes it very interesting that Jesus went over there and he went over there several times. But we can get into that discussion another time. So yeah, Galilee's further up here. And even though there's a strong uh, element of Jewish culture in that region, the Jews actually only own the land below that. So what happens over time, John O'Connor, he has sons and his sons become king and so on and so forth, until his grandson, Hyacanus II, becomes the ruler, the leader of, of, the, of the nation there. And he's a Pharisee. His younger brother, Aristobulus II... Uh, he's a Sadducee. And guess what happens? They fight. Yeah. And it puts the whole place in the civil war. Yeah, I, don't, I never understood this. It happens in church so often. When things are going well, what do we end up doing then? We end up fighting with each other. Don't we? It's almost we're driven power just kills us and these guys they finally got their nation back they've been in captivity they've been held and ruled by all these other nations now they're on their own it's them and they still got to fight with each other over what i believe in an afterlife and you don't really is that enough to fight oh, some of you here would say yes but the reality is it caused even more trouble a lot of trouble. This guy, Antipater, the Idumean, who, who are the Idumeans? They're from Edom, right? He is an uh, advisor to Hyrcanus, and he goes to him and he says, hey, mate, I can make this right. We can defeat your brother and put these Sadducees in their place. I'll go talk to the Romans, and they'll come and give us support. And he's like, yeah, go do that. So they do. And this guy, he doesn't look pretty. He looks Italian, though. You've got to say that, don't you? His name's Pompey. So the Romans send Pompey down. But what Aristotle, uh, what um, Echanus doesn't realise is that the Romans aren't about to just come in and deal with a dispute. They're going to take over. And Pompey comes down with a second legion, number two, the second best legion the Romans have. They lay waste to the countryside. They come into Jerusalem and guess what Pompey does? Well, he doesn't destroy the temple, but he destroys the curtain. He goes into the holy place and guess what he puts up there? The Roman standards, boom. 
You guys are now part of Rome. Hyrcanus, you're in charge. And he walks away. And of course, the Jews now find themselves back in that same place of captivity, of rule. And of course, Hyrcanus is not much loved. They find themselves back where they found themselves years before, under the rule of another nation. They've lost it again. Why? Because of their own stubbornness. Why? Because of their own pride. Why? Because of their own fight for power. Why? Because they didn't seek God. Antipater thinks he can fix it up because the Ptolemies are still around. This guy and this girl, this is straight from the movie, guys, as close a representation of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra that we can get. You've got to remember that Cleopatra was not Egyptian. Okay, so if you see her dressed as an Egyptian, it's wrong. Cleopatra was Greek. And even though they took on a lot of the customs of the Egyptians, she was staunchly Greek like all the Ptolemies. So actually, Elizabeth Taylor was quite well dressed there. There are other situations where they got them with long straight hair and, and, and all the symbols of the Egyptians on them. That's just not right historically. But she's starting to gain some power. Julius Caesar has died in Rome. There's a bit of a civil war in Rome because there's a vacuum of power. And Mark Anthony thinks he can, he can become the next emperor. So he goes to war against a guy named Octavian. And he goes to Cleopatra and gets her support. And Antipater thinks, we're going to go along with them. Because Cleopatra has gotten powerful. Maybe more powerful than the Romans. So we want to be on the right side. So he convinces the Jews to follow Cleopatra. Well, of course, Octavian comes and he destroys Cleopatra's empire. They both die in some heroic fashion, but they're dead. And the Jews get upset because now the Romans have more power than than before, so they kill Antipater. And the Romans are like, you know what? You guys can't do this on your own. We're going to set up our own ruler of Judea. And guess who that is? Guess who Herod's father is? Antipater. Guess who Herod is? What's his race? He's an Edomite. The tables have been turned. The Jews followed their own way. Israel was supposed to be above Edom, and now an Edomite is ruling the, Jew, ruling the Jews. Can you imagine just the tension of a very strict religious people who are, 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 have a lot of fervor about their nationalistic views, and now all of a sudden this guy is thrown upon them to rule. How do you think they feel? Rebellious, Rebellious at the very least. Hey, we beat the Seleucids, we can defeat the Romans too, Right? Judas Maccabee, he did it. We can do it too. Herod, though, was smart. He knew that a lot of Jews had become kind of, well, they're Greekified. So he builds this wonderful uh, palace, which was huge. You could see a whole land. It was called the Herodian. And then he starts doing all these wonderful buildings for the Jews. And the Jews are like, oh, he's actually kind of cool. 
The temple, he rebuilds it, makes it incredible. He rebuilds Jerusalem, he pours money into it, and the Jews are like, he's given us work, and he's actually not too bad. And here's the crunch part. These are actually a couple of friends of ours when we went to Israel. See where that arrow is? That's um, the hill where the Herodian was built upon. Uh, Herod's um, big palace. Well, the palace is not there anymore, there's just ruins. So you can imagine it's even higher when you put the palace on top of that. Guess what that little town is right behind them? Anyone make a guess? That's Bethlehem. And in this scenario, in all that I've been sharing this morning, for some of you it was kind of boring, but it leads up to this one moment where God decides that my son, who's going to save the world, will be born in the shadow of kings. He will not be born with the power of kings or the stature of kings. In fact, he'll be born with no power at all. He's going to be born in a little insignificant town. It's like being born in Ashburton. I'm serious. Actually, Ashburton may be more than a Darfield. <laughs> Not Sydney. Sydney's Rome. Oh, no, I don't think I want that. <laughs> It's like being born in Ashburton. I mean, if you're born in Christchurch, at least you're born in the largest city in the South Island. You know, we'll give you that. That doesn't mean much for someone from Auckland, I guess. But, you know, he chose this. And you've got to ask yourself, how does the God of all power decide to come on earth with no power? The big point for you this morning, as we hit off this Advent, is this, more love, less power. Friedrich Nietzsche makes this comment, he says, the basic drive of the human personality is the will to power. We are driven by power. Why? If I just have a little bit more money, I can do more. If I had just a little bit more of this, I can do much more. Aren't we? I mean, I, I, I ministered in the U.S., and we get into these discussions all the time. How did the early church conquer the greatest empire of its day? Was there a battle? Was there a riot? Did, did they stage mass, mass protests? They could have done something. They fired a gun, at least. They assassinated somebody. What, what did they do? How, how, how did they do it? Huh? They loved. And we today think we're bigger than that. We today think we're greater than that. They conquered an empire through the blood of martyrs, people who gave their lives without even thinking twice, holding their children as they went to death. And their blood, their sacrifice conquered the greatest empire the world had known without firing a single shot without staging even one small protest 
But the basic drive for humanity is power. Philippians 2, 5-8 says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider himself uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the Jesus we're acknowledging this Christmas. This is the Jesus that we are faced with as we come to Christmas. Because this verse has to be alive in us when we look at that nativity scene. This verse has to be alive in us as we sing all those carols, as we exchange gifts. This verse has to be burning within us. Because God gave up his son for me, for you. He gave up power and chose only to love. Uh, I, it's 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 hard concept for us to take, isn't it? Huh? It all started in a little town called Bethlehem. I shared with this before. It didn't start in Rome. It didn't start in Athens. It's like saying it didn't start in New York. It didn't start in London or Paris or Hong Kong or Tokyo or Sydney or Auckland. It started in Ashburton, for crying out loud. What good can come out of Ashburton? What, what, what good can come out? Well, let me tell you what good can come out of that. The potential to change the whole world. The potential to change the whole world. Power drives us. Power shapes us. And yet, yet, we don't seem to gain much from it. We Westerners need to realise that it's now those people that we send missionaries to who are now sending missionaries to us. Okay, we're still in the mindset of thinking we need to send missionaries out. They're in the mindset of saying, man, they're in trouble. We need to send missionaries to them. Why is it that Christianity seems to grow in places in the world you just don't believe could grow? And in the one country that we have the freedom to express ourselves, it doesn't grow. Why? Talking again with Steve Minor and and telling me, we Kenyans are understanding that it's our responsibility now to get the word of God out. Because the Western world is on its knees, driven by consumerism, driven by a thirst for power to control their lives. And it's only when we lose control of our lives do we actually give in and let God take control. Ezekiel, uh, Sodom, everyone's heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Sodom's sin? I've got it up there. And you could see it. You know, I asked people this week, what was the sin of Sodom? 
about three quarters of the people I asked said it was sexual sin. And I said, no, it wasn't actually. It was pride, gluttony, laziness. They let out, they didn't look after the poor and the needy. There might have been a sexual element to it. I, you know, there's talk about it when you read, you know, in Genesis about poor old Aaron. But this is what God says Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, laziness. All the while, the poor and needy suffered outside her door. That sounds to me like a city that was drunk on power. That's what it looks like when a city is drunk with power. They forget the people around them. They build themselves up and they create a very comfortable space. That's what power does. What was Solomon's sin? When he had all the power in the world, all the wisdom and power, he ended up creating a soft life for himself because he protected himself. He had 800 concubines. Who in the world? I don't know. I can only handle one wife, but I wouldn't know how to handle 800 wives. How do you deal with that? I mean, seriously, us guys are all like, yeah, man, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you handle that? But the power got to his head. He'd lost it, completely lost it. Power gets to us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. As we come into Advent, as we come in to to enjoying what is a great time of the year. There are very few people in our country that would not enjoy this time of the year. Summer's coming. Beach, warm weather. Christmas is coming. Gifts, holidays, family time. As we come into this time, I want to challenge you to take another look at the Gospels and look at the world that was Jesus was born into and I challenge you, is it much different from our world today? Is it any different to who we are today? You read the news. Nations are fighting nations. Rulers are fighting rulers. They're squabbling over a few islands in the South China Sea. They're pieces of rock that no one cares about, but they have to fight over it. You know, our demands for our liberty and freedom, our demands for our guns and our rights... Is it much different from what it was back then? I can do this on my own. I'll make my own alliances. I'll make my own allegiances. I live my own life. I'm answerable to no one but myself. Is it much different to the place that Jesus was born into? And a God that has every right to make his own name heard chooses to be born, not in that beautiful manger. And as we go over the weeks, I'll share with you what that would have looked like born like a discarded nothing that his own family wouldn't take in. That inn wasn't an inn, just a heads up. It was a family residence. The Rellos had come in and there was no room for Mary or Joseph. Can you imagine doing that to somebody today? A pregnant woman 
and a young husband. By the way, 13 years of age. Send them to the animals. They can go hang out there while the rest of us, we've got our turkey dinner. God chose this because he wants you to live by the example of Christ. That's not to throw everything away. It's your pride. It's who we are as humans. He wants us to let go of the power within us and to follow the humble example of Christ. So over these next few weeks, that's a challenge. Go back to your Bibles and take a look at the world that Jesus was born into. The craziness of the power fights that were happening all around him. I ask our worship team to come up, and as they come up, I just want us to pray. Our challenge, Lord, is not an easy one. We are, we're almost driven by, by a culture that wants us to be self-sufficient that wants us to be dependent on ourselves. We've created a life in which, well, maybe it's not too different to what Sodom was. That pride rules. Laziness and gluttony. Uh, it was no different to the world that you were born into, Jesus, when you chose to come on this earth. And as we do remind, are reminded of, of the joy of your choosing to come here, of God, you giving your son up for us, as we are reminded of that, there is joy. But challenge us, Lord. Challenge us to hear and to see who is Jesus. And what did he really do for me? Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.